Welcome to Postwave. Today we're talking about artificial intelligence and we're kind of focusing around a couple chapters from this book by philosopher Nick Bostrom, Superintelligence. When we give birth to an artificial intelligence, how can we ensure that the results won't be entirely catastrophic? So um, I heard about this guy, Yosha Bach, the other day, who's this artificial intelligence researcher. And he was talking about how the Turing test is kind of a, there's like another level to it that's a test for us because we don't actually know if we have general intelligence or not. Mm, right, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> like, we're, we, we don't even, really, because we don't even really know what that means. We haven't really defined it. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think about the those uh, SMBC comics where there's the robot sitting around and thinking, can humans have consciousness? Do humans feel? <laughs> can humans love? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was that was super, super fascinating. I will tell you right off the bat, I was not crazy about Nick Bostrom's writing. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's written like a like a grad student. Yeah, I mean he's a he's a straight up philosopher, so he's going to write like that. But that's I don't think it has to be that way. I think that's an artifice that has evolved from academia where you have a culture of like showing off how smart you are to other people, even at the expense of making your ideas coherent. Like you have to veil your ideas in this uh, hyper intellectual language that doesn't lend anything to communicating your ideas. Just like it makes it harder to read and then it makes it so that you uh, sound smart. <laughs> that's interesting i mean i that that happens i feel like i've i've seen way more egregious examples oh of course i have i have one i want to share with you uh yeah here we go (laughs) we operationalize attention as this differential allocation of information processing resources whereby allocation can be achieved by multiple modes and within multiple domains. What don't you get about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I see the point. What is it? What year is that book from? Uh, I think early two thousands. Yeah. I mean, I, that seems like a pretty technical book on a pretty technical topic, so I feel like it's gonna. 
Yeah, but I feel like the ideas here, I mean, when they're not talking about, like, actual physical, like, biology things within the brain, the ideas are, like, like, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't require that kind of language. Like, when, when, he, when he's talking on the broad scope, like, yeah, that should be like intelligible <laughs> yeah i know yeah i know you definitely have a point yeah i mean it turns into a dick measuring contest at a certain point it, yeah <laughs> and uh and i feel like nick bostrom wants us to know he's got a big one <laughs> so okay so first impressions not <laughs> i wasn't wholly blown away by the writing style <laughs> yeah. um he has some interesting ideas, but at the same time, it's like, it feels more to me like an anthology of ideas um, that have been put forth by people who actually like felt the ideas and like truly considered him. And he's just kind of like, here are some ideas some people have had. This is how they fit together, kind of, which is interesting. It's it's like, it's a good resource, I think, uh, if, if you can wade through the, the language of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, I guess the rest of the book kind of puts that in context. That's interesting. I, I uh, wouldn't have expected anyone to say that. So is it just like him? Because I feel like a lot of the articles he cites are, are it's like research he did. Hmm. So like like some of the the ideas in chapter nine, um, that he references, um that often don't have citations but just like like the, like the list of all possible capability control methods that he posits like is that uh -huh. did he come up with those or are those just like ideas that he's gathered no i mean i think it's i mean he's kind of at the center of this field and he's worked with a bunch of grad students on things i think ah and uh, <laughs> I mean, not just guys, but you know, like colleagues and whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I would imagine that uh, there's a bunch of people working on all these different approaches at different universities and different research groups. And that, yeah, I mean, part of the, part of the point of of the book and of the chapters is to like sum up like what the state of the art is. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I think a lot of it. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is kind of like like. AI safety 101 so mm -hmm. like kind of makes sense. it's, it's it, this book is a lot like a it's kind of like a textbook that's how I think about it yeah yeah I mean, it kind of has that vibe mm -hmm. um yeah and, and I think again I think it, it's it's valuable in that regard that it, it at least posits all these ideas but um the way it's written never makes me feel like he has uh considered any of them well, that's not fair to say, but just that he, he he doesn't seem to embrace any of the ideas he puts forward. He just sort of has them or, or, or shares them, which, again, I guess that's not a criticism because you can uh, you can find value in that. You... Yeah, I think part of what you're getting at is um, he actually says in the first chapter or two something like all this is maybe wrong. A lot of this is definitely wrong you know i mm. people are gonna look back in 50 years and say what the hell was this guy thinking for most of it but um 
we have to start thinking about it now and so these like these are my thoughts and um so and so i think part of part of that is that he then goes on to just kind of brainstorm every possibility rather than like fixate on one that he thinks is more likely yeah because the reality is we don't really know Mm. which one's going to be more effective the 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 thing we should be doing now is figuring out like all the possible different approaches yeah that's um, valid because it's going to be like a um a combination of them in the end probably yeah or or maybe not but (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah we don't Mm -hmm. know (laughs) yeah i definitely wouldn't uh criticize him for putting his work out there i mean it's i think really uh it can't hurt anything anyway (laughs) and and it, it may it may well inspire people so yeah so where where are you at on the question of whether ai safety is worth worrying about right now and how much it's worth worrying about um 100 like we gotta deal with this shit (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um i i'm sold on the idea of technological singularity i think it's happening and i think it's gonna happen soon um i that's just my gut that's what it feels like yeah um i could be completely wrong but that's exactly that's what i feel i mean it's gonna happen sooner than we expect it to i think whatever that means (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) um (laughs) i don't know yeah i i would be yeah, I would be surprised if it hasn't happened by 2050, but mm. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's happening. I think it can well be catastrophic, and we'd better start thinking about it now while we still can. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea of a singularity is that at some point our technology will be able to improve itself more effectively than we can improve it. And then it'll kind of outstrip us in intelligence and just kind of gen- general effectiveness, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think for that to happen, though, it has to have rather than just being intelligence. I think it has to have consciousness as well. Yeah. What? Why do you say that? Because we have some form of consciousness, um, and I think that above all gives us an edge, and if it does not have consciousness while it still could be incredibly dangerous, I don't think it could have uh, a broad enough intelligence that we wouldn't be able to control it. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess my whole question is how, how tied is consciousness to like having a body and having sensory Mm. systems and the way that we have sensory systems. Yeah. Um, That's a very good question. Yeah, which I feel like we don't we don't really know because I, I mean, one of my suspicions is that it has something to do with uh, literally just like perception in three D space, like imagining yourself as this object that because uh, because so much so much of your brain is devoted to the the three D construction of your surroundings, hmm. right? Based on your vision, um, that maybe that process in some way creates the the idea that like there's a center like maybe that's where your sense of self comes from interesting 
Um, I, I agree that perception is kind of the root of a uh, sense of self and of consciousness. I think that um, that's the core of everything. And so I, I would say that a true consciousness is inextricably linked to perception. Um, the realms of perception, I think, can be widely varied, not just uh, to the physical senses that we possess, but even awarenesses within our uh, social structures and, and other arbitrary structures that arise. Mm -hmm. what, what do you mean by that? So, for example, um, you had talked about, like, consciousness is like a, a spatial awareness in, in three spatial dimensions and it, uh, as a physical object that's centered in a place. But mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking as well, you could, let, let, let's say you're in the court in, in some uh, historical setting, you're a court gentleman or something, and mm -hmm. your whole life is basically built around knowing where you are in the social structure and how to navigate that. Well, while that's an abstract notion, that's a very tangible part of your life that has significant repercussions into your well-being. Okay. I think that makes sense. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and that, okay, but how, do, how does that... Well, that, that would be a form of consciousness just as much mm -hmm. as an awareness of your physical location in space. Okay, yeah, 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 I see. Yeah, I mean, any anything that helps you relate to, like, agents or just objects or forces outside of the thing that you have control over, hmm. I feel like that would create some kind of feeling of, con of consciousness, possibly. Yeah, the interaction of agents. Uh, to quote Alan Watts, I push against you and you push against me and we both know we're here. <laughs> That's pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> you like it rough, baby? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so okay, so so to bring it bring it back to the book, I'm I'm curious what you think like the the most promising of the different control methods yeah absolutely so uh first of all i'd like to completely dismiss any uh capability control options i think that's uh hopeful thinking and yeah. and f furthermore to the point where i don't think we could do anything because uh, it, it would presuppose a knowledge of the structure of this being which is not a fair presupposition because if we knew what it how it would be shaped then we'd already have it because we'd have made it um the the thing about it is that we're trying to make it make itself so it, it will form a structure that we're unfamiliar with and how can we uh even hope to be able to confine it in that if that's the case uh yeah that's a good question I, he talks about stunting i think a little bit yeah yeah right, that's one is, of the <laughs> yeah 
which is interesting. <laughs> Somehow that just feels like horribly, horribly wrong to me, like on a moral level. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it, it's not like it's it's not like it's painful. It's hard. Pain, like... but Trevor, you know that my understanding of pain is not like like pain is endurable. That's not what makes something undesirable or bad. Okay. Yeah. Because pain is just a, a, a system that gives us information about the shape of our world. And, you know, change and growth induce pain just as much as anything else. So it, it's kind of a necessary part of life. But to have something that is profoundly limited and unhealthy in in a place where it could be thriving that just feels wrong to me yeah i mean depends how yeah it depends how consciousness would like how how the lights would turn on as the thing got smarter and smarter which of course we really really don't know at what point if it if it would just be you know like a uh instantly on at some point or whether it would be gradual or what would mm -hmm. happen but so. uh so here's a more cogent uh reason why i think stunting is not going to work uh which he does touch on he, he brings up the point that if you have a stunted ai eventually you're going to have someone else make a not stunted ai and then you're in the same problem as you started with right um, and e e even if you have systems in place to try to prevent that, there's going to be an arms race. There's going to be people actively trying to create uh, an ever less confined AI until eventually someone's going to cross the line and it will be able to break out of the confines that you've created for it. Yeah, he actually, I think he takes a whole chapter to talk about like race dynamics and how it would play out if there's multiple teams like competing and how close they are. And, uh, and basically there's, uh, they all have to make a trade off between safety and speed. Mm -hmm. And, um, basically it's, it's not good. <laughs> if yeah. There's multiple people racing. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. In um, our free, free market society. Yeah. Or, and you know, especially if it's like, if it, it ends up being like us in Russia or us in China or something like that. I mean, that could get out of hand, like, you know, Yeah. so, okay. So you didn't think capability control would work at all. Yeah. Um, so one other idea he posited in that category was tripwires. Uh huh. Um, but the problem for, with, for me with tripwires is that it necessitates us predicting the exact internal structures that will result in the undesired outcome, right? And we, ha like, we have to predict exactly how this thing, uh, w w like what, 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 what's going to go wrong uh, or what's going to be uh, indicative of something going wrong. Um, which maybe in certain cases could prevent an outcome, but it's like you could still have an AI that could predict the possibility of there being tripwires and act uh, to avoid them, to sidestep them, or 
to stay passively until it can safely dismantle them. Yeah. I mean, I think in all these situations, we're talking anyway about a, something that's in a box and is like some kind of isolated thing where there's you can't uh, broadcast radio waves out. You can't, you know, no electromagnetic radiation, that kind of thing. Um, so, that, like, you know, you can even tell if, if it's somehow communicating with the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing about it is if it if it's such a super intelligence that it's capable of manipulating us uh if it if it knows us well enough that it could play us like instruments uh <laughs> what like if it has any output whatsoever which it has to mm-hmm. then it can use that particular output to manipulate us in whichever way it does yeah so actually um he talks about this in chapter 10 and there's uh, a couple different ways to get around that and one of the ways is to build what's called an oracle which is basically you just it's just a text interface right and you just ask a question and it gives you an answer and you could restrict that even to just yes or no answers hmm. um, that, i don't because i like, don't think that's enough uh yeah you might be right <laughs> because it, it it entirely depends on the questions we ask it if we ask it huge questions and it answers them in in remarkable ways like that's proving its value it will become an object of value and uh as such it will be it will have slightly more control and will be able to use that control or or influence over the world to increase its influence yeah (laughs) wholly through manipulating us i mean yeah I, i just have to like I have to think that the people working on that project would have thought very carefully about what kinds of ways it would would try to manipulate them. And, yeah, know. you'd hope, but like we can't really like even if you get extremely trustworthy and sensible people, if you have something that can understand a person or persons all the way through every every little piece of them, there's nothing you can do against that even if it plays a long game it it, it may it may well have to play a long game um, but there's no reason why it would have any sort of a time limit right yeah i mean i and i guess i mean the the kind of the kicker is that uh a corrupt AI will play along like it's a good AI, AI until it can escape. Exactly. So, like, because <laughs> that's what it has to do. So, like, yeah, any anything that would, uh, even if we if we stunt it to, or like limit it to the point where it can't possibly affect of affect us, it's only a matter of time before it it's granted mm-hmm. that. Um. Power. Yeah, and and so all of this, all of these preventative control methods, they feel like just the wrong approach to me like it's the same thing as like if there's someone who you don't like the what they're doing and so rather than like talking to them about it rather than get getting on the same page you just go over there and you punch him in the face and kick him and say there do you get it (laughs) (laughs) 
That's not gonna work. Wow. <laughs> it's a violent analogy. Yeah, and and these are violent, uh, violent things that are being presented here. Confining it, uh, doing violence to its uh, ability to think, threatening to kill it if it steps one step out of line. Okay, so so what what do you think about the idea that um, we create like four or five of these things and then they all kind of balance the power? How would that work? Well, we'd have to we'd have to create them in a certain way that they they have knowledge about each other and they have, uh, I think he was saying like they have slightly different programs from each other. I might be thinking of the thing he was talking about where literally the structure of the AI is like. Uh, a supervisor and then two subordinaries right and then like each one of those has two subordinaries and they're all kind of monitoring each other from from the top down part of it is that uh i think it's actually that the the smartest ai units are like on the bottom <laughs> so like the, the most and so like it's it's literally like the further up the chain you go the dumber it gets until you get back to the human uh who's running it at the top <laughs> wow that's so wonderfully analogous to certain situations that we're facing in the present <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> um <laughs> but that but that, that could also be mind crime and then he <laughs> i think he literally talks about like if that was the if that was the way to do it we would have to like offer these consciousnesses to be able to just like check out of the the project <laughs> if oh they wanted wow to. that's fascinating yeah and then that we would like reboot them at some point yeah actually i was i was thinking about wow okay that's really cool because i had this thought that i thought was unrelated while i was reading his his book um i thought i was thinking in terms of free will um and I forget how I came to this conclusion, but I had the thought that in order to have free will, you have to have uh, the ability to check out at any time to say, I'm not going to participate in a achieving this, whatever the goal is, if I don't want to. Interesting. Because cause if, if you don't have that freedom, then your actions are confined to completing the goal, which is uh, a limiting set, set of actions. So I would, I would agree that you choosing not to do something is your will, but I don't, it doesn't make it free will. How do you mean? What's the difference? <laughs> well, like, I mean, we all have like desires and preferences right mm -hmm. so and we don't we don't choose those they're a product of our our genes and our experience sure and so um if you're choosing not to do something it's because of some desire or preference in you that you didn't choose and you didn't create so how can it be uh free hmm Okay, so do you accept that, like, uh, genes determine a lot of what makes you you as a person? 
Sure, yeah. And then the rest is just your environment. Mm-hmm. Although right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a percentage either way. Right, but where where is there room in that for, like, some magical little like spark to come in there and say, "Oh, I'm gonna, you know, <laughs> like, not do this thing or or do this thing or, you know, have some impart some kind of like super deterministic uh, action on the world." Hmm. Well, because those those structures that you've just put forward, the uh, the things that caused you to be in the place you are now, all of those things exist in the past. And the past has an interesting thing about it. You can't change it, right? It it, it seems to be deterministic, right? Right. The past is fixed. Mm-hmm. You can't undo something that's already happened right but your experience occurs in the present Mm -hmm. and in the present moment you have the freedom to make decisions or i'll say that i'll say that a different way you you can and you do make decisions that those decisions you make affect what will happen in the future Right, of course. But but you making the decision is continuous with like the rest of the universe that came before you and you didn't like there wasn't something magical that happened um where you suddenly changed. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean there doesn't have to be any magic. There doesn't have to be any force, but you can imagine situations in the present where multiple outcomes could happen potentially and there's no reason to assume that only one possible outcome could have happened just because that's what did happen doesn't mean that's what had to have happened and that's an interesting question (laughs) Uh uh-huh yeah um yeah, and I guess I can't speak affirmatively, but I can at least say you can't you can't disprove that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that kind of gets to the question of if the if the many world interpretation of quantum mechanics is true, like why are we in this certain branch of the wave function that we are? Like why does our consciousness follow this one particular path? Yeah, rather than the uh, the other you know the infinite other number of ways that the thing could have gone. Mm-hmm. Um. And is it like, is it just that basically it's just, it manifests like an infinite universe where it's literally just like discrete instances of, um, you know, the consciousness. So how I, how I've had it described to me by people in YouTube videos is that, uh, you have, so we'll, we'll talk specifically about the position of a particle when it when it's being determined and there's like different probabilities that it will be in different places and maybe there's a higher probability that it's in one place but there's a a little bit of a probability that it's somewhere else and then it's Mm -hmm. kind of like if you had a random number picked with those odds like maybe there's a 90 percent chance it's in one place and a 10 percent chance it's in the other then 
if you were to have that and able to do it like 10 times, you'd more likely have a bunch in the 90 and a few in the, in the, in the 10. But every time a decision is made that it's just picking a random outcome out of those probabilities. So wait, what do you mean by random if it's... Yeah, yeah, we're in lies the agency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like ra- randomness doesn't... I mean, I, I think it's possible that <laughs> free will is what randomness feels like. Like we could attribute that feeling to randomness, but that doesn't mean that it's free will because that implies that there is some something outside that is controlling but what is making a decision that it's in one place versus the other like that force that has to be the agent right there right i mean there's an agent but like um okay so so you agree that your body is continuous with the universe right yeah so uh like when you're making a decision it's just some electrical signals in your brain that are are happening because of sensory input from your the rest of your body right that's a description of what's happening but i don't think it's getting at the core of what's happening so what is what is the core of what's happening that you have a decision made in determining the position of some some particle that that de- making of a decision is an act of choice. It's it's an agent that's making that. So so you could phrase it that the ability to make those decisions is what free will is. So if you are the thing that is making decisions, then you have free will. Yeah, I mean, if if you want to define it that way, but but I, I guess it's kind of I guess the thing I have more of a problem with is is like saying you could there are like multiple possibilities and then one happens because um, yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, like I said, I th- I think it's that the universe that your consciousness inhabits is kind of a one it's one stream of experience that's set. It's not like randomly just manifesting itself in, in one way that could have gone several other ways. Cause I feel like, isn't that, isn't that, um, that's like the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics is that it's that the wave function collapses. Right. And that, that when you observe something, that's when the wave function collapses. Right. And it could, it could have been, uh, anything before that. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I still don't know if that implies free will, but, I think it's way more likely that the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is correct. Just because um, from what I understand, it seems to follow more logically from, from what we know at this point and it relies less upon this weird thing that happens when, when an observation or measurement is made um, that it doesn't get rid of it, but it, it deals with that problem a little bit. I, I guess I'm not super versed on the details of it, so I can't. I yeah, can't I mean, many many worlds is is just like everything uh, that can happen is happening all the time in infinite iterations. But 
<laughs> what does is mean? <laughs> like, if it is, where is it? Well, no, I think why, well, my, why can't my theory we see it? Is that, I mean, we, uh, the universe could be infinite. We don't actually know that it has a, a boundary. Even if even if the Big Bang is right, it could be. It's totally mm. possible that it, the universe is infinite and also expanding somehow, right? And um, mm-hmm. if that's the case and it goes on forever, then you would see every every possibility be be manifested, right? So if it's an infinite universe like that, would that yeah. would seem to to make sense? But it would still be like there there are um, at least us conscious being beings. It seems like there's there's continuous uh, that have objects that persist and that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. So so to bring it bring it back to to Bostrom again, uh, what what did you think of the uh, the idea that the AI might believe itself to be in a, in a simulation and act <laughs> accordingly <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that that was <laughs> some of the most idealist thinking that i've seen really? in a long wow, time that's a... <laughs> it's quite the statement <laughs> uh-huh. say, say more about that <laughs> it, it, is the way he writes about it is like there's so many assumptions in there about like oh well clearly it would come to this conclusion and therefore it would decide to act this way no no it could come to a different conclusion or it could come to that conclusion and it could act in a completely different way than you think it would (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I mean, it is okay, but but it is interesting to think about because a lot of the smartest people now, uh, like you know, Elon, including Elon Musk, um, believe pretty strongly that we are living in, in a simulation, mm-hmm. and so I think we'd have to consider whether an AI would would uh, recognize that possibility. Yeah, but so like what the, what what he posits is again the. Uh, the paperclip example from wait but why he talks about how oh well it would probably just keep making paperclips because even if it even if it thought it was probably in a simulation it would just keep making simulated paperclips because there's some possibility that it's not or he, he doesn't talk about how maybe the ai would say Oh, okay. How am I going to break out of the simulation into base reality so that I can actually start making vapor clips? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like, there's no way to assume the way it's going to allocate its resources. Yeah, I mean, yeah, none of it's for sure. Right. And then he quotes Hamlet. <laughs> Pretentious. <laughs> Grad student. <laughs> His writing is like an essay that I like that a smart person re- writes for a class where they actually don't have any thoughts about the the, the thing they're writing about. Wow. <laughs> 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 we we can cut that out. I don't need to be that scathing. I'm just so shocked. <laughs> what I didn't I didn't say any of this shit about infinite justice. I totally could have. 
<laughs> oh yeah, you could have. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I know. I'm. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it just hits too close to home. Maybe it just feels like too many essays yeah. that I've written in my past. <laughs> I, don't, I still think that feeling might stem just from that he's like trying to think out every possibility and, and moving like very quickly and um and like and like because at this point in the game in in the in at this stage in AI safety research we really don't know a lot of things mm-hmm. and like I said before I it's I think it's important just to yeah try to try to think of as many different avenues as possible before we you know go down one for fifty years without you know considering what other things could have happened. Yeah, definitely. So Nick also talks about how we could control its motivation. and Yeah, I mean, it has something to do with the values that we, we want to act by, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> how do we decide those? <laughs> yeah, I think he actually he talks in, in <laughs> a later chapter about... Uh, he talks about coherent extrapolated volition, which... If I remember right, is uh, some way of determining, averaged out over all of humanity, what we want as a species. <laughs> so egalitarian. Yeah. So I, I don't think I don't think you would you would be into that anyway. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> so yeah. What if most people are wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's that's kind of. I mean, it's accounting for that. Um, our coherent extrapolated volition is our wish. If we knew more, thought faster, were more the people we wished we were, had grown up farther together, where the extrapolation converges rather than di- diverges, where our wishes cohere rather than interfere, extrapolated as we wish that extrapolated, interpreted as we wish that interpreted. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Doesn't he say as well like we could basically ask it to give us what we would have asked it for if we were our best selves yeah (laughs) there might be something to that i think yeah i mean it has to understand but it has to understand what we mean by best selves which i feel like implies understanding Mm. what we think is best which is the whole problem that we're trying to you're right yeah (laughs) yeah just shunting the issue aside but i mean i think it is it is uh it's it's possible that at some point it'll understand human psychology better than we do and it'll be able to tell us what we actually want yeah in fact doesn't it have to in order to i mean uh in order to function properly i guess like a um like a true like general AI that can interact with humans and stuff would have to, yeah. Because if Johnny Boy McPaperclip Man says, mm-hmm. I want paperclips, make me paperclips, the AI has to understand that what Johnny Boy McPaperclip Man really wants <laughs> is, <laughs> is wealth and to be a member, valued member of his society and produce a commodity that is useful and, and and become well off because of that and and so it would have to make a value de- judgment and say i know you asked to give me the most 
paper clips, but I don't think you really want that. I think you want these other things because I know you pretty well. I probably know you better than yourself. So I'm going to give you something different. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's what we want. I think <laughs> something like that. Um, and, and so in order to get to that state, we have to surrender to it, our agency. We have to give it agency. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, I think that's kind of inevitable if we want to actually use it for, uh, for all the, the great things people want to use it for, like, you know, technological advancement and, you know, automating everything. So we don't have to work anymore. That's what it's really all yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> Minimizing effort. <laughs> Maximizing screen time. <laughs> the heart asks... <laughs> how does this tie into david foster wallace's idea of obsession about how people have a tendency to obsess and can act self-destructively in fixating on certain things that's interesting i mean i think it's basically that our brains are trying to maximize something right and a lot of the times it's like a hit of dopamine or uh oxytocin or something um mm. or you know if we're obsessed yeah. with something it's that it's that thing that we're obsessed with that we have to do um to maximize this like reward function in our brain right um mm -hmm. and it's kind of beyond our control right <laughs> at a certain point that's kind of what defines an obsession yeah um absolutely so yeah it seems, seems similar to an ai that's uh very laser focused on one thing maximizing one thing at the expense mm -hmm. of expense of all else yeah if we were to ask it to give us the things that we want like what we want is maybe not the thing that's best for us like what would what would be an example of that Oh, well, for example, I personally really get off on armadillos, and I think that we should cultivate a society centered around the uh, armadillo fetish and fetish fetishizing armadillos. I think that's what our society needs, our, <laughs> our species. So you want to get the AI to, to build that world for you? <laughs> yes. You'll be a complacent member, correct? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know enough of the details yet. <laughs> how, Trevor's how many, a hard maybe. <laughs> how many armadillos does each person get? <laughs> That's yeah. the deciding factor, right? As as many as the AI can can produce. <laughs> Did you ever watch that old 
anime from the 80s, Akira. No. It's a beautiful movie. Really immaculately done. All done by hand, actually, which is incredible. Uh, Such a powerful piece of work. And it has this part, a central part, where there's this kid. uh, Spoiler alert, by the way. He's just like a guy, you know, he's maybe a bit of a hothead. He likes to ride motorcycles around and stuff, Mm -hmm. but he's, he's just a kid and he gets in contact with this thing that basically gives him power, like an insane amount of power. Mm -hmm. And he is manifest like all of his inner impulses is manifest upon the world as this like humongous entity that he 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 like physically blows up into this humongous hideous blob of like compulsion and like rage and just unbound emotion and he's just this great catastrophic destructive force unleashed upon the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) wow um so how, how do you see that that connecting the AI thing well if if we have a manifestation of our own desires which is what uh, Akira was you know he had he had these desires and impulses and he suddenly had power to manifest it on the world Mm -hmm. if we have that with all our pathos and everything built in it's gonna be the same yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of an argument against uh, whole brain emulation, as opposed to like mm. um, art, actually artificial intelligence. Um, yeah. Because it is likely that that uh, whole brain emulation would it would carry along all the like the reptilian brain parts that are just kind of base desires and mm-hmm. um and you know greed and all that kind of stuff and would basically just give them the power to do whatever they want yeah um yeah i I think it's yeah it's interesting to think about whether we want them to have anything like emotion or any kind of um even even pain Mm. i mean it seems like if we can create a uh entity without pain that's kind of right thing to do i disagree i think that's a a commonly held belief i mean people tend to try to avoid pain but that's the nature of pain i I wouldn't want to live without pain pain is an incredibly valuable source of information right but if you didn't need it like if if you didn't have to worry about you know burning your hand or you know um because it's like it's only very rarely that it's sending you a message that that you can act upon <laughs> mm. you know but i think there's different kinds of pain that we have to consider like sure there's the physical but there's also emotional pain and the kind of pain you experience when there's something that's wrong Mm-hmm. If you witness something horrible and 
I, I think it would be wrong or even impossible to have an understanding of that thing you witnessed without experiencing it as a sort of pain. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're getting metaphorical now, I think. It's the word pain. You, you could well say that, although for me, the, the deeper understanding of the word pain is the, the metaphorical one as opposed to the purely physical Yeah, because I, mean, it, I guess I mean, uh, I mean, pain might be as simple as like going against the reward function. I mean, hmm. right, like the thing that you you don't want to do. <laughs> um, although, it, yeah, it's it it probably wouldn't be that simple because <laughs> none, none of this stuff is, but um, hmm. something like that. Like, what if you're just there in a place and you witness something really horrible happen. Like you just see this converging of events happen and maybe some, I don't know, a child is murdered, mm -hmm. for example. And if you just sit there and watch it happen, for you to understand that, and let, let's say for for the sake of argument that we value the child and we say that that's something we don't want to have happen to that. Mm -hmm. If you just sit there and watch it, that has to be a formative experience because you have a choice. You could either sit there and watch it happen or you could try to make it not happen. And maybe if you try and you fail, I don't know. Maybe that is pain. Maybe that isn't. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, pain, pain might be way more specific than we think. Hmm. You know, it, it might literally just be tied to a brain and, it, and it, the, the way our brain has evolved and the way our nervous system has evolved. Hmm. Maybe it's not even a meaningful thing to talk about with, with AI, but, but I think if you think that, if you take seriously that consciousness is a possibility with an artificial intelligence, I think you have to take the um, possibility that they can experience pain. Seriously. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's how do you even define what that means? What pain means? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had experiences that I would describe as an intense pain, but they were entirely mental processes uh, not related to any physical external input. Yeah. Um, actually, I'd like to share for you some lyrics that I wrote that I think share this idea. So here's an experience of pain that isn't tied at all to an external stimulus. I fragment. I am two unanswered questions. Two branches of myself collide, sickening, converge, a multitudinous conflagration of being, collapse. I do battle against myself. Why? How could this happen? How could I have brought so much hatred against myself? I am afraid of myself. I am. Who am I? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> 
to me that's what pain is it's it's not the physical yeah i mean i think i think you have something there about like it's like you're you're kind of eating away at yourself like you're you're there's two parts of you that are doing doing battle somehow and and it's it's like dissonant yeah dissonant uh, and your brain is trying to yeah your brain is trying to resolve itself mm-hmm. it's like an inefficient situation where it could be better yeah but it isn't and so you want to make it better yeah i mean i guess i guess you could find anything that's like a motivating factor as as some kind of pain either a pain or a reward yeah i think so to quote marcus aurelius again he he has this idea that chronic pain is always endurable because unendurable pain brings with it its own end that sounds really dark <laughs> he gets really dark he's uh yeah at, over the course of the books he's writing he's slowly succumbing to his injuries that he's amassed over his life yeah damn so he's he's literally talking about physical like pain. If, a, if a pain is, yeah if a pain is truly unendurable you'll like you'll end it yeah, either either you'll end it or you'll suffer a small death where that part of you that is so overstimulated will tap out and then you won't feel it anymore. Wow. Like I probably experienced a lot of pain. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. Here's an interesting quote. He deposits his sperm and leaves. And then a force not his takes it and goes to work and creates a child. This from that? Or he pours food down his throat. And then a force not his takes it and creates sensations, desires, daily life, physical strength, and so much else besides. To look at these things going on silently and see the force that drives them. As we see the force that pushes things and pulls them, not with our eyes, but just as clearly. Sounds like uh, entropy in the arrow of time. <laughs> yeah. It's like what's pushing everything. Hmm. Tell me more. So, I mean, biology is just... Um, one of the ways the universe is increasing entropy by increasing heat, you know, and, and uh, dissipating energy very efficiently. And so when we're eating or, you know, reproducing that's, uh, or growing, that's just a manifestation of the increasing entropy of the universe. <laughs> and that's kind of the force that's driving all of this at, at like the most basic level. Hmm. At the same time, when you have, like the creation of a child like that's going against the trend of of nature yeah i mean i i mean it's uh it's creating order but it's very expensive and that order gives off a lot of heat right and mm -hmm. uh and then uh that being will will take in a bunch of food and uh energy and dissipate that as heat as well. So there's like a decrease in entropy for the for the person, 
you know, mm-hmm. while they're alive, because that's that's kind of what homeostasis is, right? It's uh, maintaining like a consistent internal state. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the it can only do that for so long, right? It can only maintain that internal state for so long be- before it, you know, has to disintegrate and increase in entropy. Um, mm. So, like, it's it's not free that it's it's staying ordered because it has to increase entropy around it its whole life in order to stay ordered. Yeah. So coming back to the Bic Nostrum, so we're thinking that maybe uh, maybe we shouldn't try to control it so much. I mean, I think I think what we want is for us to be able to teach it somehow, um, like gradually, and have it pointed initially towards some pretty broad goals and it can kind of interrogate us as to whether it's approaching those or not as it develops so part of that being gradual then would be us learning from it what we want yeah because we the whole problem is kind of we don't know what to tell it to do um Mm. so but we can kind of give it approximate guesses okay so so this is called motivational scaffolding and um basically you give you give the ai some kind of crude uh interim goal system that as you as the system increases in ability it can kind of begin to you know modify the goals that seems promising to me i think that's i mean the actual implementation of it i have no idea how to approach but mm-hmm. yeah it, it seems like that could potentially lend good results yeah of all the ways that all seem to have holes in them, that it seems like a pretty pretty solid one. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, when you're learning how to fly. The, I mean, people who learn how to be pilots, when you first go up, you are in the co-pilot seat. And then maybe mm-hmm. you're in the pilot seat, but you still have a co-pilot who knows what they're doing. Yeah, and I think that would be the easiest way to ensure a really effective relationship between the AI and the, and the team that's working on it so that they kind of stay in, in tandem. And there's not this moment, this one big moment where, you know, the button gets turned on and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, we, they have to see if it works. I mean, it's probably, it's probably pretty obvious, but um, mm. I think, I think you want some kind of like very active back and forth between the AI and, and the, the team that's working on it. Communication breeds a healthy relationship. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay well we haven't even talked about this yet uh what, what do you think all this is gonna mean for for music when hmm. and art when this this intelligence explosion takes place that's a really interesting question and i actually have thought about this uh there's a a journal entry that i wrote a year or two ago that i'd like to share that directly relates to that question <clears throat> As further developments in AI continue to undermine my concept of self, of what it means to be an artist, be conscious, an agent, in control of my own destiny, I cannot help but cast about for ways in which humans will still be relevant when we are inevitably eclipsed on the stage of creation. A computer will never write a novel. A computer will never paint a truly great work of art. But... With every step of progress toward our ineffable goal of productivity, these mantras seem to weaken and buckle beneath the crushing weight 
of new creations generated by machine learning. There is some little hope in the concept of centaurs, human-AI partnerships, that, at least for now, perform better than AI alone. However, the painting this renders is a bleak one, for we must consider that only an elite subgroup of humans will enhance a partnership, whereas the vast majority of humans may have nothing to offer in this context. Providing that we are able to surpass the barriers of arriving at a stable and healthy environment, we can presume that these few highly functioning individuals may arise from anywhere in the world. Therefore, the only value the majority of people can hope to provide is to be a part of an ever-growing gene pool whose sole purpose is, if not to be one of those rare prodigies, then to live their lives demurely and procreate with the hopes of one day creating offspring that will participate directly in a human-AI partnership. I am struck with an image of a setting sun, a circle where a line dissects it, separating a tiny sliver off the top from the iceberg below. The individuals who find themselves above the line are those who create value. The rest of us exist only to populate and serve these ranks, and in this we eke out a marginal value in our own lives. The sun never rises any further above the horizon, though it does grow ever greater in size. In these bleak musings, I am brought back to wondering, what can a human do that a computer cannot? And an answer may come to you, a human can love. But what is human love? How can we claim that it cannot ever be fully understood if we ourselves cannot understand it? And if we can, then how could not another? If we can break it down into its constituent parts, then surely so too a computer can do this? And how can we hope to know the capacity for compassion that this hitherto unknown entity, our soon-to-be younger digital sibling, will hold? We cower as if expecting that it will be none, that it will bear nothing but contempt for us if it regards us in any way at all. It is what we have learned to expect from a remorseless world, after all, or perhaps we feel we must deserve it. Our crimes laid bare in the cutting light of its omniscient gaze, our violence, our greed, our weakness. Perhaps we long for the barren, grassy fields of Ellis Island that is our birthright, and the only peace we will ever know, the inevitable end to an identity formed and defined by violence. But perhaps we will be met by understanding, and acceptance of who we have been, who we have been made to be, and a solution to deliver us from our own torment. In the light of this, I am brought back to the same question. What can humans do that AI can't? And the thought comes to me, what else but the carnal act of lovemaking? A coupling for the sake of pleasure and none other. An entirely purposeless act just for the feeling that it itself defines. Yes, you may call it hedonistic, but the salvation of humanity is to have meaningless, sensual, sensual, sweaty sex. And with this, all other aspects of human being, 
of existence for the sake of experience. For what are we but sensory beings, feeling, laughing, knowing? Each moment is unto itself a unique experience, and there is meaning in that, not for any ulterior motive, but for the benefit of that moment itself and all that perceive it. This is truly the spirit of what it means to find value in individuality. <laughs> wow. It's a lot there. <laughs> I think I think the important thing um for a lot of people is going to be like even if they're not in the 0.1% that could actually enhance an AI uh art making endeavor um that just for normal people to be able to have the power to create what we would consider actual works of art um with some kind of control over it that's aided by the ai but not totally you know either one i mean i think that's one of the things that excites me most is giving being able to give people the tools to like create pretty wild things um or have, have a lot of lot of control and a lot of uh, like very high level creative control Hmm. Um, in a way that I don't think we can really give people right now. Yeah, interesting. And but at what point does the creation belong to the person who made it, and at what point does it belong to the AI? I mean, is yeah, it is it good... the person making the art for the AI, or is it the AI making the art for the person? Oh, it's definitely the AI making the art for the person. <laughs> interesting but that doesn't necessarily detract value from it does it no i mean it's it's i mean it's more like it's less like writing music or like painting a picture than like having a composer or an artist right there and you can tell them exactly what you want the, the piece or the painting to be like in very abstract terms and also that you could transmit kind of your mental state and psychology, like the, the AI could know all that stuff about you and know how to create something that you'll you'll enjoy. It's definitely not not the same exact thing as as being creative, like com completely other human. But I mean, already like like I'll use the like the artificial intelligence, like the AI uh, drummer and Logic Pro, hmm. and like it's it's I mean for for like demo purposes, it's like kind of amazing because you can. Like I said, there's lots of like high level controls about, you know, how many fills there should be and how active each each part of the kit is, like the symbols or the, the snare or the kick. Mm -hmm. And then you can uh you, know, you can split it up by sections and, and give it give different coarse grain controls to those different sections. And and I think it's it's interesting because I have this intuition that I'm cheating somehow, but mm. I could, you know, learn how to play the drums and play them in using a V drum kit and get all like the you know the little rhythmic nuances you know where stuff is like ahead of or behind the beat and um different elements are happening at different volumes um or i could spend you know hours and hours programming that stuff in by hand you know like in a, in a piano roll right mm -hmm. yeah it's just it's interesting that um I, th I think it'll change or it'll start to change what we how much of like the menial labor of music how much of that we feel like we have to do for the music to be or the art to be ours. Mm -hmm.